Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right. Today's conversation is really a continuation of what we've talked about in the last few episodes with the sort of major investing factors that are out there. So um, I believe it was two weeks ago, you guys hit the value factor and sort of talked about that, what it is, um, maybe why it works, uh, it struggles as of late, and then uh, you know how Matt thinks about using value in planning and for clients. And then last week, we talked about quality and low volatility, which are two of the factors that um, you know, investors sort of have in their portfolio uh, with a lot of the, I think, stocks that people know about and own, but, you know, they're not, they're not maybe as clear as, as value. And then the other one we're going to talk about today, which is, which is momentum. Um, so for today's discussion, it's going to be about what momentum actually is, the ways that you can measure it, why it works, um, some of the ways that momentum can be improved upon, um, and then, you know, always trying to bring it back to how Matt thinks about momentum in terms of, you know, building portfolios for clients, maybe some of our experiences and utilizing momentum in investment strategies as well. So, you know, this is good. The audiences seem to enjoy these factor discussions, which thanks guys. Uh, sometimes we think we're geeking out over here a little bit too much on these factors, but um, they're fun to discuss. It's kind of our wheelhouse a little bit. And uh, Matt's a big believer in factor investing too. So anyway, with that being said, um, yeah, let's talk about momentum. You know, Let's start at a high level. What, how, how would you guys define momentum? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's one of the easier factors to define. I mean, it's effectively just buying things because they've gone up. Um, you know, that could be, it's one of the easiest ones to define, but one of the hardest ones for investors to believe in, I think, because it, it's buying things that have, because they're going up, but it's also like, you know, if I'm trying to pitch anything to you guys, like I want you to invest in something, you want to know about the business. You know, you want to know about the cash flows it's generating. You might want to know how cheap it is. Like, you know, you probably on the surface, you know, wouldn't just because it's going up, wouldn't want to invest. Like I always try to tie it back to like everyday businesses that don't trade in the stock market. So, you know, when I'm buying a stock, I'm, I'm buying a partial share of a real business. Like if I've got the liquor store down the street from me, and I don't know why I use that example, maybe I've got some sort of a problem we need to talk about otherwise, but uh, like I do have a liquor store down the street from me, but, <laughs> but uh, um, if I've got that and I'm saying, Justin and Matt, I want you to invest in the liquor store down the street from me. Here's here's my pitch for you. The price of it has gone up a lot. You're gonna be like, what? Like, why would I do that? Like, show me some fun. You know, show me some financials. Like, am I gonna get cash flow from this business? Tell me something about it. And you know, before you're gonna invest, and, and that's the problem for people is you you try to apply that same logic to publicly traded companies. Well, it, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would I invest in something purely because it's gone up? But as we'll talk about as the podcast goes on, there's clear and compelling evidence to support the momentum does work in public companies, even if it's hard for maybe your average person to understand it. 
Jack, I think you use that example because uh, your dad might have been in the, in, in the liquor business. He was actually that that's a better explanation than the uh, than the other one. So, but he did. He, he managed a liquor store for many years. So I, I think it's worth saying, and I know you guys were joking when you were telling me this is what we we're going to talk about today, that we should talk about uh, the band Poison and interject a bunch of Poison songs into this. <laughs> but you've, you've already teed up the perfect. You're going to do it anyway, though, aren't you? I'm not going to talk about Poison. Okay, I, good. <laughs> I, I really thought about it. And then I was like, well, momentum is about speed. And what, what better embodiment of speed than Fast Car by Tracy Chapman? And to your point about buying the liquor store, that's that's one of the things. The old man's got a problem. Jack, you're our resident old man here. You live with the bottle, and that's the way it is. Um, but but in all in all seriousness, and I probably will keep making Tracy Chapman references now for the duration, just to warn you. But it's momentum was one of those fascinating things to me, especially early in the business. We were talking before we pressed record about I started uh, advising and investing clients on their money. Uh, right before and right into the financial crisis. And where momentum immediately stood out was understanding, and I know we'll talk about this, but some of like the risk controls in like moving average type strategies. Uh, Meb Faber wrote that great paper years ago. Jeremy Siegel in Stocks for the Long Run. There was a whole appendix on it that I read. And the first time I read it, it was like, this doesn't make sense. And then the world's ending and you're like, well, that makes a lot of sense. And understanding how price changes can actually inform the rest of the process is one of those things you, uh, especially if you're trained as a fundamental investor, you might shrug your shoulders at first, but as you guys well know, you dive into that data and it's pretty dang compelling there. It might just be, in Tracy's words, a ticket to anywhere, but sometimes just having a ticket and a strategy to go forward, momentum is an insanely useful tool. So... Tracy's a good example too. Didn't she just win like a songwriting award at the Country Music Awards? Because I think I think it was Luke Combs that redid the song. He didn't redo I, it actually. He just did the same song. But uh, I'm gonna save my commentary on that, and we're not gonna you know completely trash the CMA for you know finally getting a person of color an award for songwriting. Uh, but yeah, she's she's in the news right now, and I think that's probably why she was on my mind. That was a really really exciting thing. And and hey, the Luke Combs cover not that. He did it. He did it in the original version too. Like the parts that like would come from a female voice, he still sang it the that original way. He kept like totally true to it. It's a great and beautiful folk song. So it's wonderful to see it's getting its due. And I'm not surprised at all that it keeps coming back because, my God, I've been weeping to that song since 1988 or whatever. Now, <laughs> just to go back to that point about you know investors not really understanding it because it doesn't have a tie to the fundamental. I think a lot of people when they think about momentum, they automatically think about like expensive growth stocks. And yes, momentum can bring you into expensive growth stocks. If you think back to the end of 2021, you know, it was basically the expensive growth stocks that were exhibiting the most momentum. Um, but it doesn't always mean, you know, growth and momentum are very different. You can have value stocks exhibiting momentum. You can have growth exhibiting momentum. You can have quality exhibiting momentum, kind of like we're seeing this year. So I think that's, maybe one of the struggles that investors have a lot of times, you know, investors tend to be value or growth or quality. And because momentum can change a lot, it can just bring a certain type of investor into a stock that they're not necessarily comfortable owning because it's really doesn't fit with their style of investing. So that's just another thing I think that makes it hard for investors to understand. Yeah. Two things on that. You know, one is people actually like intuitively people like growth better than they like momentum. 
because, oh, the, the earnings are growing or something, so I should invest. But what's interesting is momentum works, growth doesn't, um, at least as, a, as an investing factor. You know, like Jim O'Shaughnessy looked at this in his book. Like if I just invest in the companies with the highest sales growth, that's a bad strategy. That underperforms the market. If I invest in high momentum stocks, at least over the, the proper measurement periods, you know, that outperforms the market. So it's just interesting. Like people like the idea of growth, but momentum is actually a better concept. And to, and to your other point, like momentum, I think it's Corey Hostein that says momentum's a chameleon. And, and that's a really good way to describe it because if you're used to owning a certain type of stock, if you want to own a certain type of stock, you can't use momentum because momentum was growth for a long period of time. Now, then momentum became value. And like, you know, if you're looking and you've got, you know, Facebook in there at one point, and then you've got, you know, steel company in there, you know, after that, you know, it's hard as an investor, if you're tied to a certain type of fundamental approach to use momentum, because you're just not going to see consistent types of stocks in your portfolio. I think the idea that, and I, I think this comes from Wes Gray, it's the the two sides of the coin between value and momentum. And we'll probably keep coming back because they're so complementary in so many ways. But value as the overreaction to bad news, momentum is the underreaction to good news. And momentum, funny enough to the point you just make, shows up in that like over and underreaction. Overreacting on the way down, stuff just keeps going down further and further beyond its fundamental value. And if it's not going to get zeroed at some point, that that rate of change slows and stops. And on the upside, the underreaction to good news, something keeps getting carried further and further away from that fundamental anchor because it's that underreaction of good news. Stuff keeps just getting better even when it gets inexplicable. So just knowing that, like the two sides of the coin for the value-focused people, that you have value, that overreaction to bad news, momentum, the underreaction of good news, it's so behaviorally complemental, complementary in the way we understand it. I like when you handle my parts for me, Matt, because I, I don't, I've given that explanation like 200 times. So uh, you do a better job than me. So it's, it's better to have you jump in and do it. But, you know, one of the interesting things with that is, you know, we've always talked in all these episodes, we've talked about the risk-based explanation and the behavioral explanation and you just gave the behavioral explanation. And momentum really is one factor where most people think the behavioral explanation is the vast majority of it. With value, we talked about, you know, you've got the risk-based explanation, you've got the behavioral explanation. There might be a, a risk-based explanation with momentum, but most people don't think that's the majority of what's going on. Most people think the behavioral explanation is the majority of what's going on. And that's one of the reasons the efficient market guys don't necessarily love momentum, because if, it's a, if there's an efficient market, the risk-based explanation is the one you need. You don't, you don't need to see, you know, investors are un, under or overreacting to this or whatever. You don't want that if it's an efficient market. You want just the risk-based explanation. And so it's why a lot of people that, that are in that camp don't necessarily love momentum. The, the one slight thing I might say about that is from a risk, I, you know, I agree with everything that you said, but it's like when I think about momentum as well, if you think about the stocks that are exhibiting the most momentum, you know, you do tend to get investors want to come in and sort of chase that. Now that can result in continuous momentum, which is kind of supporting you know, maybe a part of the reason why momentum might work, but then that also bids up the the valuation of those companies. And so maybe, you know, what you get is it drives up the valuation. So they do become riskier, possibly. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's as, as portfolio manager Tracy Chapman would tell us, you know, you have to ask that question. It's fast car, not slow car. And is it fast enough so we can fly away? <laughs> And like the risk-based decision is like, do I think this car is fast enough to finally turn this corner, escape this thing, whatever? And that assessment is always going to come down to the, the portfolio manager and, and how they're defining that component of risk. 
the other there's and there's another thing going on here too with uh companies that have stocks that are exhibiting strong momentum and that's this concept of reflex is it reflexivity Am reflexivity yeah yeah the hardest and, word in finance to say <laughs> that's a tough one for me yeah. um and you know and that's the idea that i think if a company has a really good performing stock you know there's the potential that they're going to be able to attract the best you know think about technology you can attract the best employees you can reward employees with stock options other great engineers and and other people in the industry are gonna um see that and maybe want to join that company and so there's all these benefits that come along with a, a strong stock price performance that might kind of circle back around into some of the characteristics of how the company is being built it's human capital employees how it rewards employees and that kind of is circular the flywheel starts going that's kind of the, the concept of that right yeah it's just the idea that good news begets more good news and my, my favorite example of that is elon musk back in the days where he did like the funding secured 420 or whatever it was uh tweet like there was a period where tesla's business was was not doing well and was it was in trouble but he was able to keep the momentum in the stock and, and having new momentum in the stock allowed him to issue more stock and get money for the company it allowed him to attract good talent with stock option plans like like if, if you can keep that story going, you know, good news just creates more good news that creates more good news. And some people think that's a, that's an explanation for why momentum exists. So you've just demonstrated that Tesla is a fast car, at least in that period of time. Yeah, <laughs> or probably in every period of time, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and reflexivity, I think, like understanding it as as a social phenomena is I always thought of it as just the spiraling. It's like, how does that spiraling keep going up or down? reflexive on the thing that came before it because when you break apart the actual uh the, the the psychological theory behind it and that's a lot of where it comes from it's that cause begets effect begets cause begets effect to your point really useful to understand and look for when you see it so let's um sort of pivot a little bit here and talk about the various ways that you can measure momentum and we're kind of going to use, you know, even I get, I have to like look these, you wouldn't think I'd still have to, but you know, there's the cross-sectional momentum and then there's time series momentum. And we'll, we'll kind of work our way through these, but I think it's, I always like to think of, you know, to, to make it very simple, like cross-sectional uh, cross is, you know, relative price performance versus other companies or asset classes or sectors or industries. So how has one stock performed versus another stock? Um, and then time series is like moving averages. So let's just kind of broadly, like that's how I tend to remember them. But let's kind of talk about starting with cross-sectional, what type of periods we would me measure cross-sectional momentum over and other ways that we, we might want to incorporate various, uh, I guess, other factors to help maximize this type of uh, momentum measurement. Yeah, just to pick up on your definition, the, the, the idea is basically cross-sectional is comparing something to some to other things and time series, you only need the asset itself. So, you know, cross-sectional is usually used to select assets and, and time series is usually used, like you said, for some sort of timing situation to get in and out of assets because all I need for time series is the price of the asset itself. For cross-sectional, I need it relative to other things. Um, so yeah, getting, getting into cross-sectional, the first idea is like, what do you measure it over? Um, and that, that's really important because momentum doesn't just continue forever. If momentum continued forever, whatever the best performing stocks were would just be the best performing stocks. And I mean, I guess you could argue with the, uh, whatever they call them now, the mag seven or whatever that, that has happened to some degree, but it's not what happens in the data. You know, typically you want to measure it over say three to 12 months, give or take, um, like momentum over three to 12 months tends to persist. 
very short-term momentum, which we'll get into in a second, we talk about the measurements, tends to mean revert, and very long-term momentum also tends to mean revert. So you want to stay in that that space of, of three to 12 months, uh, typically when you measure it. Yeah, so in terms of the various measurement, um, I guess, statistics or metrics, you have relative strength. A lot of our strategies that we use actually use relative strength. And then the newer strategies that we've imp implemented actually use more intermediate term momentum, which is 12 minus one month momentum. So let, but let's start with relative strength. So if you have a stock that has a relative strength of 90, what, what does that mean? Did it, did relative strength come from O'Neill, Justin? Did he invent yeah. that? I don't know if he invented it. I mean, he had it squarely in the Canslam strategy as a very important. Yeah. I don't know if he was the, orig the originator of that or not. I was just thinking about that as you asked the question. So I'm yeah. pretty sure, and this is going back, I'm not sure if I'm going to get it exactly right. Cause, uh, so John Murphy's book, do you guys have John Murphy's book? Are you familiar with that? His, his epic tome financial analysis of financial markets or something like that. It's on this bookshelf behind me. I don't have that one. I learned a lot of this stuff from John Murphy originally. Um, and I think it also depends if you're using RSI, like the relative strength index and then how you're mapping it. Cause you can right. use that against itself too. Um, on an absolute basis versus on a relative basis, like we're talking about, which is also confusing. So yeah, to get back to your question, which I did my usual sidetrack there, but uh, to get back to your question, relative strength is just judging the performance of anything uh, or for a stock, particularly against all other stocks. So a relative strength of 90 means I've outperformed 90% of stocks over whatever time frame I'm measuring. Like one year is typically used a lot. So typically if you see it on a, on a site, it's usually over the one year time frame. 90 means that stock has outperformed 90% of other stocks. And the other way to do it is 12 minus one momentum, which is what you see in the academic research. And the idea of that gets back to what I said before, which is short-term, you know, momentum tends to mean revert. So what I can do is instead of measuring momentum over the past year, I can go from month two to month 12. I, I, I could basically skip the first month in my calculation. So if, if I skip the first month in my calculation, I'm getting that mean reverting period out of there. And, and I'm trying to get at the momentum, you know, just over the rest of the period. And so in academic research has proven that works better than just a straight one-year momentum. So you see that in a lot of the papers, you know, you read. And it feels like there's a lot of intuitive sense there to invoke portfolio manager, Tracy Chapman. Again, this is like Tracy and the guy figuring out how to get out of town because the town is full of the stuck people. And so we're doing this measurement to say, what's like the escape velocity of this thing that I want to invest in to see if it's persistently or has been persistently performing against like the broader reference class that I'm taking it out of. Of the strategies that we run, I'm just going to try to ramble off here. And if you guys want to comment on any of these, but I'm just thinking like, so um, Tim Van Vliet's conservative investor, multi-factor, low volatility strategy uses momentum. Um, we basically have a strategy based on the Motley Fool. It's a small cap growth investor strategy that uses momentum. O'Shaughnessy's cornerstone growth strategy uses um, momentum, relative strength. Um, the uh, quantitative momentum, which is based on Wes's paper, obviously uses momentum. Momentum's at the core of it, basically. But And then we have fundamental momentum, which is this idea of combining price momentum with fundamental trend or positive trend in fundamentals. And um, what's interesting, what I found just in tracking the strategies on Validia that we use that have a, this momentum in them, a lot of them, because the momentum criteria is so high it it they do do a good job of keeping you out of trouble so to your point matt on these risk reducing things it can because once the stock's momentum 
is broken down, these strategies have a tendency, if the momentum criteria is very important, they will move out of those stocks and into something else that's performing better. And we'll talk about maybe the, the, the turnover aspect of that in a little bit. But um, yeah, so anyways, there's a, lo a lot of strategies are using momentum in combination with a lot of other sort of fundamental factors for stock selection. Yeah, you know, and that's probably the most the most common way you've seen it used in the real world. There are pure momentum strategies, definitely, that can be very successful that don't use anything but momentum. But even those, as we'll talk about in a little bit, have other criteria besides just straight price momentum. You know, there aren't too many strategies that are just straight price momentum. That's it. Like, I don't do anything else. You, you know, you, you try to get at the quality of the momentum or you combine the momentum with other factors. You know, that's typically the way we see it used, you know, most in the real world, I think. And within your strategies, you guys are, and I think this is what's important too, there's so many stripes, there's so many colors of momentum that depending what you're going to pair it with, things like the the time frame you're choosing, that all matters, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and also like the the idea in terms of the time frame of momentum, we talked when we did the value episode about a value composite. This idea we can measure value in a bunch of different ways, but maybe the best way is just to use all of them because we, we don't necessarily know which one's going to work best. The same thing can apply here. You know, well, I, I said before, three to 12 month momentum. Well, what do I do? Do I use three? Do I use six? Do I use nine? Do I use 12? You know, what you'll see with a lot of people is is sort of a combination of all of that. You know, you'll see people use use multiple look back periods to, to judge the momentum to try to get at, at all of those different things. Um, and obviously, like Justin said, there's some turnover implications you have to think about based on which type of momentum you use. Um, but but again, that's yeah, I think that's that's sort of the way I would look at using momentum is, is you generally will will try to get at the average of the momentum over time versus trying to pick, like, let's try to get the exact type of momentum to use. And I was just going to say the, the shout out, which I might've mentioned already. I know we've mentioned on other podcasts, but Journal of Finance, I want to say it's 2012, maybe 2013. Uh, if you're interested in the combining of these strategies, the Clifford Asnes and uh, uh, I think Toby Moskowitz wrote it with them, Tobias Moskowitz. Um, the way these things combine and map together across different forms they're complimentary, <laughs> complimentary. Like it's really worth diving into this, which is why it's so cool. You guys are doing this work. The other thing I mentioned here too is momentum is, I think is great as a negative indicator. So, you know, I, I mentioned before at the beginning, you know, people don't love momentum because it's like, I'm buying a stock just because it's going up. But what people do love about momentum is if I can say, all right, I'm running this fundamental strategy, but I'm going to take the absolute worst performers. and I'm going to get them out of there. Like if something has a relative strength of like five or below, you know, something's probably going wrong with the company and that that may be not a long-term opportunity, but people don't love seeing that stuff in their portfolio. So you'll see that a lot. You'll see it as kind of a negative screen. Let's just get rid of the bad stuff. You'll also see it as a buy criteria a lot of times. So, you know, somebody, I think DFA does this, I'm not sure, but a, a lot of places that, you know, have this other fundamental strategy will say like, let's use momentum on my entry and my exit. Um, let, let's not make momentum a core thing in my strategy, but it can help me figure out, you know, when to get in or something like that. So there's, Momentum is very flexible. It can be used in a lot of different ways. It's, it's not just, you know, saying buying the stocks that have gone up the most. Uh, there was, I want to say it was Savita Subramanian's work at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, but looking at, and it was probably building off of Richard Bernstein. It was building off of that exact idea. Like in your value strategy, you use it to avoid value traps for mm -hmm. like portfolio entry. And then on the, the other side, like to sell, you're looking at rate of change. So when all of a sudden that price is getting further and further away from your fundamental then you start to go like, okay, now it's getting closer to time to get out of the position because this momentum is getting to an extreme level. One of the things that Wes and, and uh, Jack Vogel pointed out in their book, Quantitative Momentum, is that stocks that are exhibiting more consistent momentum 
actually tend to do better than stocks that have, you know, a very wide variation in their momentum. And it kind of makes sense. If you have like two stocks that have returned, let's just use an example, like, I don't know, 75% over the last 12 months, one stock was, you know, up 50%, down 25%, up hundred, you know, you had a lot of variation in the price returns. And stocks, by the way, on average, do have in any given year, you know, the standard deviation of, of, of stocks is, is quite significant. But you, you'd much rather be buying the stock that is month in, month out, you know, producing, you know, positive, good price performance and doing it more consistently. And that's sort of a, a variable that they have in the quantitative momentum formula, looking at those stocks that have, I think they might call it more continuous versus discrete. They want to see more continuous momentum. Yeah, I always like the example of like Google versus the biotech company. So Google, yeah. you, you've prod, got the pretty consistent path upward. The biotech company made the gains in one day and then just kind of hung out there or something. You know, the Google momentum is better than the biotech company momentum. And, and I think the sort of the way that the, the academic taper that they reference in the book sort of relates to like information dis diffusion in the market. Like, you know, as the good news continues to come out, investors kind of flock to the stock and they kind of bid it up. So that's more the continuous momentum. It's like the retailer that, you know, like, I don't know, Target yesterday was up 16% or something because, you know, earnings were slightly better, but it's, that stock's been crushed. So it's like, you know, that's not, that 16% move, it still has probably pretty low, like relative strength if you look at it because the price performance over the past year. But it's just the point is that those, you know, big movers of the biotechs that, make earnings or the retailer that misses or makes earnings or whatever it might be, you know, that's not the type of price performance that really is positive momentum. Um, so anyways, let's talk about just real quick and wrapping this one up. Well, we want to get to the financial planning part, but let's just talk about some of the, I guess the downsides, the things that investors should be aware of. And we, we've already mentioned one of them, which is, you know, with a lot of these momentum strategies, there's uh, oftentimes high turnover because momentum tends to work with portfolios that are rebalanced more often. So if you're using momentum, you're going to want to be following something that has a pretty frequent rebalancing frequency or schedule, um, which by the way, which is one of the great reasons to utilize momentum or find momentum-based ETFs because you know th those are super tax efficient. But what are, you know, if you guys want to just comment on that or some of the other, I guess, downsides of momentum that investors should be aware of. Yeah, turnover and tra the transaction costs that are generated by turn by the turnover are an issue. Um, you know, I think momentum overcomes that issue. You know, there has been some work by some large asset managers where, where they tried to argue it does not, but I think I don't think that's right. I mean, I think momentum does overcome the issue, but you have to understand that it is an issue. Like, and if you think about it, like if I'm buying a value company and I'm buying a momentum company, and I think about the reason I'm buying it, well, how rapidly does that reason change? If I'm buying a value company, the reason I bought it is not going to change that rapidly. You know, the value is going to be there at least for a period of time. With momentum tomorrow, that reason could change. You know, the stock could go down 40% tomorrow. So, you know, to, to stick with a momentum portfolio, it does require more turnover, definitely. And, and that is a downside. But I, I think momentum does overcome the downside. And there's also, you know, one of the things with momentum too, you got to be careful of. And thinking back to the end of 2021 is a, a good example of, you know, when momentum can crash. And a lot of times I think that happens at these periods in the market where you have just, Maybe I'm going to say too much risk taking or, you know, I'm thinking back to, to like the technology 1999 where valuations were crazy and then the Nasdaq fell by and in those all those stocks clearly going into that peak were 
all those overvalued technology stocks were clearly the top of the food chain in terms of momentum. But then when the party ended, you know, it didn't end well. Um, and it's on a smaller scale, but the same with the end of 2021. So you do tend to have these periods where momentum can bring you into the frothiest, most overvalued speculative places in the market, if that's where investors' appetite is. And then, you know, when that goes sideways, you know, those types of stocks can obviously take a big hit. Yeah, I wrote down a quote from a, Matt mentioned Tobias Moskowitz earlier. Like I wrote down a quote from one of his papers, which is across numerous asset classes, momentum strategies have produced high returns, high sharp ratios, and strong positive alphas relative to standard asset pricing models. However, the returns to momentum strategies are skewed. They experience infrequent, but strong and persistent strings of negative returns. So that's how he explained momentum crashes. And that's probably better than I can explain it. So uh, yeah, it's just something to be aware of, you know, if you're using momentum. And, the, and then I think the other thing to be aware of if you're using momentum is momentum can struggle a little bit at turning points. So if you think about it, if I'm using the, pre, the past returns of something to decide to invest in it, if growth's been working for many years and tomorrow value just starts working, it's going to take time for momentum strategies to catch up to that. And, and during that time, you're going to struggle because you're going to be in the wrong stuff. So, you know, we, we've seen that, like when you get those major and the, the, the faster the turning point is, the harder it, the turning point is, the worse this is. But when you get those major turning points, momentum can struggle at least for a period of time until it catches up to what the new source of the momentum is. And, and the very important point on that is at bear market bottoms, which is when some styles and some stocks and some strategies get the best return, you know, momentum's not going to have you there. So, you know, if you think about most re deep recessions in, you know, and, and the period of time and coming out of those, the stocks that tend to do well are the ones that are going to survive the, you know, the recession, but that are beaten down the most. And, you know, that's a lot of times like for small cap value investing, that's where a lot of the returns actually come from. And, you know, momentum's not going to have you there. So just, you know, kind of be thinking about that the next time we go into a deep bear market. And when you're thinking about sort of this conversation about momentum, momentum and stuff, it's not going to be, you know, you're, it's, you're not going to be in some of the names, but maybe if you've used momentum, you got, maybe would have avoided a lot of that pain, um, possibly you know, going into that bear market or at the low of the bear market. So that's just kind of something I want to mention there. And inside of products too, this becomes really important for people in the allocator seat. If you're thinking about using this, understanding the turnover and how the factor is being harvested and then understanding how that, like if that turnover is slow or depending on the measurement period of the relative strength or the momentum or whatever's informing the strategy, you want to make sure the thing that sucks the most about a momentum crash is sometimes you just keep walking into successive crashes. And the rebalancing being more frequent often in these strategies means it could be like, oh, you've been invested in growth and that's been working. And now it went parabolic. And all of a sudden, growth starts to tank. So you sell all the growth and then you run into like banks and then banks start to tank. So then you're like, well, that sucks. Uh, let's go to utilities. And it's kind of like because of that lag in the data of what it's doing, the worst part about a momentum crash in a strategy is sometimes you will experience this cascading rotation into the things that have worked that are about to go off the cliff. And that's part of the strategy. That's where you really have to be ready to stick to it. But that can be horribly disorienting, especially for like traditional value-minded investors to understand why some quantitative strategy would just keep punching you in the face. To your point, it's, it's important to understand, you know, for funds, how are they measuring momentum? How often are they rebalancing? Like all of that stuff is so important in the returns. Like if you have a momentum fund that's rebalancing once a year, 
and you get one of these rotations in the market, you know, you could be in the wrong stuff for a really, really long period of time before they even take the time to look at the portfolio again. So it's really important to understand that, I think, as you look at momentum strategies, it is with all strategies, but, you know, particularly with these strategies, just to understand how, they, how are they measuring momentum? How are they rebalancing it? Are they doing it in an optimal way to actually get the most out of momentum? The clearing out of what works or the clearing out of what's not working and the clearing into what is working and the cycle by which that occurs, whatever that time frame may be, whatever the rebalance strategy may be, like it's as important for momentum as it is for like low vol and other factors. And we see that, like if you look at some of, and I'm not picking on like, like I don't know, pick on like iShares or something, go look at a strategy and then actually watch like the sector or the holding exposure over time. Find a soil chart that shows you this. And I mean, it's kind of a sign that the strategy is designed well. You'll have to find a couple of these periods of persistent pain. But when you see it, you're just like, oh, oh God, not again. Like you picked another horrible, horrible thing. It's, it's, it's rough. But that's where the alpha supposedly is going to come from, uh, right, guys? Yeah, and you saw the other thing. I would, the only last thing I would say on that is you have to be careful about funds in terms of the size they grow to, because these things we've been talking about they become a much bigger issue. If momentum's a strategy that requires high turnover, if I start to have billions of dollars in my momentum strategy, I'm going to have to start making compromises on the momentum in order to keep the strategy. You know, I might rebalance less often, or I might you know use different. There might be a bunch of different things I might do to try to lower that turnover. And, and those things might hurt me in terms of maintaining the exposure to momentum I want to maintain. And we, we have this factor tool, Matt and I use in a previous podcast on Validia that looks at this. And you can see this in some of the momentum ETFs. You can see the exposure to momentum is not what you think it would be. And the reason is because like when they get really big, it, it becomes hard for them to maintain that exposure to momentum because of the turnover that's required to do it. Soil chart. I got to get my hands on one of those, Matt. <laughs> Which would be very valuable, by the way. I, I, you know, I think that that's something that tool that, I mean, is there something that exists out there that shows you like how a fund was positioned at different points in time? Actually, uh, just I know with like the strategies that we run on Validia, the model portfolios going all the way back to 03, you can flip the strategies back to any rebalancing date to see what the portfolios were holding. But we just list the stocks. Like we don't show you like the industry or sector exposures, but is there something out there like that? Uh, the great thing about ETFs is a lot of that information still lives on public record somewhere. So yeah. there are some tools and some resources that uh, people can do that for you. I know in the past, I haven't done this recently, but when I used to have to look into these strategies and kind of help compare them, we'd use tools like uh, Aladdin and stuff like that to help like dissect this stuff and see even inside of like the momentum portfolios, when did other factors help explain some of their returns? to understand the correlation cross-factor and how you would stack these things up. I bet. Do you think Corey Hofstein has something on this? Once well, I was going to say, Jack, I think you might have your marching orders for uh, a little product development because... Uh, okay. Jack doesn't want to be doing any more product development. <laughs> Anytime, like, I, oh man, Jack, we battle between like an idea that Justin has and like Jack's not wanting to add anything else more to the website because it's just a amalgamation of like ideas over like 20 years almost of different functionality and tools and stuff it's funny we always have these things like oh wouldn't it be great if we had this or wouldn't it be great if we had this and i'm like no it would not be great if we had this <laughs> Justin, <laughs> if i didn't have to build it maybe it would be but uh, right. since i do have Justin's, to build it no <laughs> justin's got the fast car jack's got the job that pays the bills but together yeah. you've got a cma award in your future <laughs> nice 
All right, so let's um, let's talk about time series um, momentum, which is also known as trend following. Like we said before, it's like using basically the price of the asset itself um, and measuring that against different, you know, different, uh, I guess, in indicators or levels. Um, but let's sort of walk through some examples, I guess, starting with maybe what mo a lot of investors know, which is, you know, moving averages. So if you're talking about the moving average of a stock, moving averages of an ETS, you know, what, what that actually is and maybe how they're measured and how an, an investor would make a buy or sell or risk management decision, you know, based on that. Yeah. I mean, this is traditionally used as a risk management tool. Time series momentum. So the idea is basically if I can find some sort of indicator that tells me when the trend is negative for something and I can get out of that thing when the trend is negative and I can get back in when the trend is positive, I can have a better risk adjusted return than if I just held the thing the whole time. And I, and I can also avoid maybe some of these periods where investors make their biggest mistakes. I can avoid 2008, like I'm sitting in cash or something like that. So that's the idea of, of what we're trying to do. So then the question becomes, how do I measure it? And you know, the most popular thing is moving averages. So you'll see the 200 day used a lot. It, the the idea is basically just when when a stock or anything or the S&P 500 or whatever goes below its 200-day moving average, I sell it. When it goes back above its 200-day moving average, I buy it. And, and if you look at the return profile of that, what you get is typically something pretty similar to the return of buy and hold, but much better on a risk-adjusted basis, lower drawdowns, lower volatility. But what you also get is a lot of bad indicators along the way. You know, it, it would be great if every time we break the 200-day moving average, it's 2008. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Unfortunately, when you're using these strategies, we're going to break it. It's a false signal. We're going to break it. It's a false signal. We're going to break it. It's a false signal. We're going to do that 10 times. And then the 11th time, it's going to be right. And it's going to save us so much money that it makes up for the other 10 that I was wrong. But the problem is still sitting through those 10 that I was wrong is still very difficult to do, even if the 11th one makes up for all of it. Knowing the moving averages and how you pair them up against the other strategies you're running becomes the most important thing. Because if you're using moving averages for risk controls, they are going to take you out of stuff. And it goes back to that, that wonderful old sentiment about time in the market is more important than timing the markets. But then we find out fun details, like when stocks are below their 200-day moving average, the best and worst days occur. So maybe you just want to strip them all out. But it's, it, it's this idea. It's an imperfect tool. If you know how to use it, if you're willing to stick to it, over time, it works. And by all means, if you don't already know, go do the homework about simple versus exponential. And remember, your 200-day is also your, uh, what is it, 40-week and your 10-month and how you look at this stuff. Because it's all the options in the world are there, just like momentum uh, itself. This gets it, uh, at Jim O'Shaughnessy's two points of failure. And we just had Jim, actually, we just published the episode today with him on the podcast. The, the idea that, you know, investors panic because they lose money. Investors also panic because they look different than the market. And, and those set, that second group is the one that struggles a lot with trend following because you're going to look a lot different than the market a lot. You know, you're going to be in sitting in cash or whatever you're doing when you're out of the market. You're going to be doing that while people are making money sometimes. And, and so if, if that's your biggest problem, and I think for most investors, that is their biggest problem. I think people are willing to lose money if their friends are losing money. I think they, they don't like as much, you know, trailing when their friends are making a bunch of money and they're sitting there in cash and their trend following strategy. So if, if that second problem is your biggest problem, this is not good for you. But if you look at just purely the data and you take the behavior out of it, this is a really good strategy. I mean, it, it's a risk, it's a, it's a good risk management tool. It, it helps you when you want to be helped the most, when the market's down, when things are going against you, it can be coupled with other, you know, risk management tools to create like a pretty efficient risk management system. I, I think trend following is a great strategy, 
but it's a strategy that's very tough for a lot of people to use. One of the things that our data shows, we have a trend following tool on the Validia site and the asset class is the industries or sectors that have had, you know, massive drawdowns. Like think about commodities, think about energy, think about technology going back to, you know, the year 2000, starting in 2000, those, you know, 70, 80% type of drawdowns, you know, are largely avoided when you overlay trend uh, on, on top of them. The drawdowns might be cut in half in terms of the max drawdown. So that's important for two reasons. And this goes back to the low volatility conversation we had last week, which is, you know, you're, you're sort of cutting your losses way short. So you're building back up from a higher base. It's going to take you time to get back in if you're using trend, but you're, you're not down 70 or 80%. So you're starting from a higher level. Um, and then also just from like a behavioral perspective, you know, pretty much no investor can stomach an 80% drawdown in, in commodities, for example, or in energy or technology. Um, and so, you know, that's where trend following becomes valuable if you want to, you know, stay in the asset class. Um, and those drawdowns, so it's not like that's happening in every, any, any given year, but when it happens, it's, it's very painful. And, you know, some areas of the market tend to be a lot more volatile and have larger drawdowns than others. So I think if you're going to consider trend following, you know, you want to think about that. I, I don't think you'd want to use trend following on like consumer staples or utilities or something, just because, you know, the losses there aren't going to be as high. Um, but anyway, so that's just sort of gleaning some insights from the data that, that we have. And this, uh, this idea we talked about before using a composite with cross-section momentum, the, the idea works really well here too. And a good example of this is like 2020. So the, the bear market that happened very quickly, you know, we talked about the 200 day moving average, but in practice, most of us are not just using the 200 day moving average. We're using something else, but the speed you're using play, plays a huge role here. Like in 2020, if you were using a short-term signal, you might've gotten out pretty quickly you know, you might've done better. If you're using some of these longer term signals, you know, by the time you got out, the market was already going back up. And so you're late getting out, you're late getting back in. It's, it's a disaster. And so usually the better idea is to blend them all together. And, you know, that's the one we do for run these for asset management clients. That's what we do. We, we have a different, we have a composite of a bunch of different metrics we use. We know we're never going to get the right one. We're never going to get it perfect, but some of them are always going to be working. And so we get more of the average of the trend rather than we try to spit you know, pick the specific part of the trend that, that's going to be the right one. I'm glad we're talking about this now because in less than an hour, I actually have a call with a gentleman that reached out to us because he was listening to our Gary Antonacci podcast and had some questions around dual momentum and wants to know sort of how we look at things. So as a refresher, Jack and or Matt, let's just... <laughs> kind of work through dual momentum real quick. So I know what I'm talking about in like 45 minutes. So we talked about both time series and cross-sectional momentum. Dual momentum is the idea of combining them both. So as an example, I could use time series momentum to determine whether I'm in or out of the market or something like that. So I, I could look at, for instance, you know, Gary tends to use this idea of the, asset, the return of an asset minus the risk-free rate. So I could say, look at the S&P 500's return over the past year relative to the risk-free rate. If that return is greater than the risk-free rate, then I'm in. If it's less than the risk-free rate, then I'm out. And then once I decide if I'm in or out, that's where the cross-sectional comes in. So with the cross-sectional momentum, now I'm going to decide now that I'm in or now that I'm out, what am I going to buy? So one, one example that Gary, I think, used in the book is the idea of international or U.S. stocks. So first I can decide with the time series momentum, am I in or am I out? And then cross-sectionally, I can look at the relative strength or the 12 minus one return or whatever I want to use of international and U.S. stocks and decide 
which one do I want to be in? Would I prefer to be in international stocks or U.S. stocks? So in general, that's the idea of dual momentum. So thinking about like some of the strategies like protective asset allocation and generalized protective momentum, you know, the way that those strategies, those are like ETS rotation strategies that basically will look to be in, it look, has like 15 different ETFs that it can choose from. It looks to be in the six ETFs or three ETFs that are exhibiting, depending on the strategy, exhibiting the most uh, momentum on a relative basis versus all of the other ETFs. But then if the majority of the ETFs are in a downtrend, the strategy can actually move to cash. So there's a combination of using like a relative strength set of indicators along with like time series effectively or trend following to kind of blend the two together to create, you know, a strategy that is trying to, you know, manage downside risk more effectively than maybe just a pure, you know, relative momentum ETF sector rotation strategy, something like that. And even though dual momentum investing made my brain hurt a little bit, uh, I, I love that book. That's a fantastic book. And it's, it's great for the insight of what you just said. How do you combine absolute and relative momentum in some way, shape, or form to actually make portfolio decisions and then think at all those successive layers? Like, am I just thinking inside of U.S. Uh, tech stocks or something? Am I thinking in U.S. broader market averages? Am I thinking globally? Am I thinking globally across asset class? And all the different layers that you can stack or combine with this as a tool, meaning momentum as a tool in these two different ways we can measure it. We've kind of been deep in the weeds on momentum here, but Matt, how do you, I mean, just from a planning perspective, like share some of your thoughts about how you kind of utilize momentum with clients and, and how do you talk to them about the elements of their investment strategy with you that may incorporate aspects um, of momentum? I mean, you've hit on a lot of it already, but I'm just curious in, in terms of wrapping it up here trying to bring it back to, you know, how you're advising clients and talking to them about this type of factor. Um, what do you, you know, how do you position it? How do you talk to your clients about it? So this is one of those classic things that's really hard to talk about in the technical terms. Most people aren't going to, most people just aren't that interested in building the spreadsheet with you. Uh, but it can be really informative. And I think probably the most practical way understanding momentum investing is is useful in like our day-to-day -day work is actually explaining, helping to explain stuff that's going on in markets. And if there's a fundamental driver or some type of other, another set of language around like sentiment drivers and things like that, that are pushing things sometimes to an extreme. So it's, it's easy to point out like in the end of 2023, the crazy outperformance of like the NASDAQ and the Magnificent Seven. But it's also really important to point out, like from a momentum perspective, like this is a deviation from the norm. It's probably a deviation from fundamental values in a number of cases, and it's just more return than anybody would normally expect. And therefore, in that environment, like your chance of a momentum crash or something else is probably heightened. And so understanding these concepts, understanding what other types of investors might be prone to uh accessing these types of accessing these types of strategies and pursuing this type of logic, which again, nothing wrong with it. If you got your strategy together, then we can help explain that back to clients. This has also been incredibly useful in the past for people who work for public companies and things with stock options and other stuff. If something's been on an absolute momentum tear, we want to take that and compare it back to some fundamental analysis of the company and just go, it's probably an okay time to take stuff off the table 
here's a series of reasons why you can feel comfortable with that decision. Likewise, if you work for a company and it's perennially in the toilet or not exhibiting momentum, I say that having worked for a major bank for the dominant portion of the post-financial crisis era, um, when you're in those things too, it's like, yeah, we just, it just can't get out of gear. And so long as you still therefore believe in the fundamental story, you might be okay with momentum not working because you're going, this won't get out of gear. I think eventually it does because fundamentally it tells me I'm not going zero. Momentum just tells me we can't get an investor base behind this to start the gradual underreaction to the good news that lifts things off the ground. So as a language, understanding like the narrative around momentum, tremendously important. Uh, and I'll, I'll take it back to Tracy Chapman, like one last time. It's, it's this idea of you have a strategy to get out of town, to get into the city, to get new jobs, to get out of the thing that you're supposed to do. And just that question of like, do we think this is a fast car? Is it fast enough that we can fly away? And helping clients understand like the contextual frameworks around that can be super, super useful in having these conversations about planning for people's futures. Great stuff. I'd love to be able to play us out to Tracy Chapman's fast car, but I don't think we have the rights to sort of drop that in the podcast. So I mean, uh, one of those 2015, 2016-ish like electronic mm, versions, mm, you must be able to jack one of those. Okay, like maybe, the I'll try, maybe I'll try to find it. I'll try to find one. Mm. Anyways, guys, hope you guys found this conversation uh, valuable and useful. Uh, thank you guys for watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.